Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Nicks? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Right out of the gate. What's going on, man? Women, people, children, animals. How's everything going? Filthy animals. Today is John Ridley uh, Day here on WTF. John Ridley is a screenwriter, won the Oscar for um, 12 Years a Slave, and I knew he was writing movies a long time ago. He's written a lot of movies. But what a lot of people don't know is he was a stand-up comic. And I remember him very clearly as a stand-up comic, Mr. John Ridley. And I've always wanted to have him on because it's rare. I mean, I don't know how many how many Oscar-winning former stand-up comics have I had on this show. How many? I should know the answer to that. But his journey was a unique one uh, in, in my mind. From being a guy who I knew at the comic strip in New York. I remember some of his jokes even. To a guy that wrote, wrote several several movies, a lot of television, and then won an Oscar, an Academy Award. I've been trying to get him on for, for over a year. And finally, we sat down and did it. It was great to see him. It was great to talk to him again. So that's coming up here momentarily. I was in New York for a few days. All right. I don't want, I don't want anyone to go crazy. Some of you already know because I dropped some hints. There were some hints. Yeah, very clear hints. There was a picture for fuck's sake. I, you know. I interviewed Keith Richards in New York, and this was a huge, a huge day for me. I, I'm not going to say it was bigger than the president; it was different than the president. But in my life, in my heart, in my mind, it's a powerful bit of business. I was excited like a child. You will hear this. We're going to put it up in September to uh, to align with the release of um, of Keith's new solo album. But we sat for about an hour. For about an hour, me and Keith, one on one. Something happened that hadn't happened in a long time for me. Uh, and something happened that I never thought would ever happen, which is I, I talked to Keith Richards. We had some laughs. We, uh, we hugged, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we sat there and, uh, I, I, I was beside myself, but that's something you can look forward to. I also interviewed, uh, Annie Baker, the play. I went and saw a play. Let me tell you something, man. Annie Baker has written, a, I've seen two of her plays. I think she's written about five that have been put up and published. I, I'm not sure. I tried to, I'm not good at reading plays, but I saw both of, both of her shows are running in New York. One is called The Flick and one is called John. And I saw both of them. And it is so fucking great to go see a piece of theater that that is written uniquely and, and with a, a certain tone and point of view and sense of humor that is completely hers 
And it's modern in the way that it, it, it applies to my life, to our lives, to lives uh, of people of my generation and, and younger. It's just fresh, man. Is that the word the kids use? Is that the word we use? It's fresh. It's deep. It's funny. It's interesting. And I tell you, when you, I don't go to a lot of theater because I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of, of, you know, I'd rather sit in my garage wondering what I should do for an hour or two than go to a bad play. I'd rather sit and say, what am I going to do today for an hour looking in my refrigerator than go to a bad piece of theater? So it's rare that I get out, but I got out and it was provocative and interesting. And Brendan and I saw both of those shows and we talked for a long time after both seeing both of them. I was excited to talk to her. Uh, that's coming up. These are deep teases. I don't know exactly when these are going to be up, but but I felt enriched. I felt elevated. I felt like you know I was doing something that humans are supposed to do, but somehow avoid because it doesn't, it feels far away, the theater. It always feels like, uh, I gotta go to a play. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna go to a play. Do we gotta wear a jacket? But theater should be essential and it just isn't. But I think with shows like, uh, like Annie's, there's a possibility that it could be again. I was just so, it was so elevated to be challenged and excited and, and full of humor and crying and stuff at a play. I mean, I can do that. I, I can do that just just sitting at my dining room table, you know, on Twitter, but, but to, to have the experience with other people and to be engaged in um, drama and funny, it's, everything is so disappointing sometimes because he, here's, here's the death of what culture should be, of what expression should be, of what creativity and entertainment even should be. If you ever find yourself going, Hey, you know, it was good for what it is. Well, maybe it shouldn't be. Why do we have to make these exceptions? Why is there so much fucking garbage? Why are we hooked into you know massive brain numbing sort of desire mining advertising campaigns that just rope us into a, a necessity that we feel like we should be part of? And then you 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 go and you're like, well, that, how could that be anything but disappointing? Why do we make such tremendous exceptions for mainstream entertainment? It's just like it's a fucking nightmare. We got to raise the bar for fuck's sake, man. It's just like sometimes I just I, I look at what's going on <laughs> around me, you know, entertainment wise and culture wise. And, and I'm like, I just I, I just don't know why things aren't just bringing people together and, and making people more vulnerable and open and, and connected as opposed to just sort of like being this weird passive engagement with just, you know, a few hours of garbage. And then you walk out and you don't even remember it and nothing changes and the pace of life just goes on. Need more mind-blowing shit. I guess that's my point. We need more mind-blowing shit. Could people make some more mind-blowing shit, please? So John Ridley here, his ABC show, American Crime, is nominated for 10 Primetime Emmy Awards. He won an Oscar for 12 years of slave screenplay. And uh, he used to be a stand-up comic. And he he rarely talks about that. I'm, I'm, I, I, I think personally that he just wants to shut the door on that part of his memory, but uh, I didn't let him. So uh, let's talk to John. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed 
fast and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ridley. I live such a insular... I mean, honestly, I, I, I built this like house that's like... It just says you're not welcome to uh-huh. come in, and I sit there with my wife and my kids. And Where is that? It's sort of it's in it's in um, the valley in Sherman Oaks, uh-huh. but it's kind of like remember that scene in uh, Citizen Kane where yeah. Citizen Kane's talking to yeah. she's like, "What time is it in New York?" I bet they're out and everybody's uh-huh. out in Broadway in New York. And he's like, "We don't we don't need to go out. We have everything here. I'll, I'll run a movie for you here." Oh, gee, no. I bet it's nice in Central Park right yeah. now. Well, we don't need Central Park. That doesn't end well. John, <laughs> it, it's not. But he figured it out at the end, so uh, I figure at the very least, you know, oh, oh, really? Last month. Yeah, you, he figured you it out. That it's... one last selfish moment that it was the sled. It the was. Sled. It was. A th- it was. You know, the funny thing. I've, I remember seeing Citizen Kane, and um, I was in college back when they still had you know the student union movies sure. before. You know, you could download everything, and there was, you know, so it was only you know maybe nineteen, but there was you know there's still that build up to Citizen Kane. Sure, and you see it the first time, at least for me. And you get to the end and you go, what the, you know, what the F? Right. And you just think, well, I don't get it. What is, what is this all about? And yeah. then it sits with you a little bit and you go, oh, well, that's, that's all of life right there is that one little thing. Everybody has that one little thing yeah. that sent you in some direction. It was the hug you got or didn't get. It was the toy you got or didn't get. And or just that one good memory. That one memory. I want to play in the snow and all the oil, all the, the oil millions and billions. That's all great. But I just wanted to be in the snow. The pure joy. Of, of childhood and yes. so at some point it, it comes back to yeah you get these things and it's all nice and yeah. wonderful ni- life but Ugh. when you're staring up at the uh, the tiles on your way out uh what is that one thing you're going to think of and so. what yeah and and what what is that one feeling that you you never could get back never could get back for a lot of things yes. and I, I think the for me at least i think i've gotten to the point now where i've started to you know, I was telling you that story about my my yeah. son and my yeah. sons and my dad who's still with us. My mom's still with me. So uh-huh. I've had that opportunity to at least kind of circle back around a little bit. Well, it's funny because I remember you <laughs> uh, because, like, I, I remember – not only do I remember you and the, the, the sort of tone of your being – at the time when do we... Do you really? you remember that much? I do. Because I remember you and I remember being around. I remember other comics, but I wish... And not to interrupt your story. I wish I remembered that time in my life, I don't even say maybe our lives, yeah. better because there were so many people around, some known, some unknown, who were like... They were they were interesting. There was an interesting time. Well, I think that my my feeling about you, like because it was primarily at the comic strip where yes. I would encounter you. Yes. And you know you, you you know you were doing all right. Uh, you know I remember you got Letterman and but I yeah. and I and I to this day quote a joke that you wrote. There's a, <laughs> like I remember a joke, which is um, uh, the there's a new cigarette being marketed to black people. It's called Uptown Cigarettes. I I would have liked to have been in this pitch meeting or whatever. It's like a, hey, you know, Bob, I couldn't help but notice still a lot of black people around, right? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was such a beautifully concise, powerful joke. Not unlike John Thank Stewart. You. Yeah. Not unlike John Stewart used to have a joke uh, after we had sent a bunch of food resources to Somalia. You know, yeah. We attacked them. And he had a joke where he just said, uh, uh, we're bombing Somalia. I guess they're done eating. <laughs> There, there was a there was an economy to the the power of that joke, but what I remember about you was that you know you were intense and and it it did it, it you did not seem happy. <laughs> I you know what I and it's, it's funny I look I look back and it, it's a lot of people would say that about me later in life they'd go they'd find out I was a comedian for a while like oh you comedian you don't seem very happy and I think it was beyond you know that joke about comedians yeah. laughing on the outside crying on the inside I really. Rightly or wrongly, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I guess in the end, maybe fortunately, I had this image of where I thought I should be in life. and At that time. At that time. And even at that time, I thought there were a lot of people interrupting where I need to be and not understanding that, A, you, you tend to get where you're going to get it. Wherever it is you're going to get, you're going to get there. Yeah. Life sort of figures out. And B, maybe it wasn't that other people were interrupting my process. Maybe I actually didn't have that figured out. And it certainly didn't end up being in stand-up. And that was something I figured out one day. I was like, oh, yeah, that that's not actually for me. So well, I was not a happy right. and person. I, I mean, that's what, what, it, what registered, is that there was like some, you know, uh, you were... I, like something wasn't happening quick enough. Yeah. And, and <laughs> no, absolutely. And I really, I still have that problem now, but I think I'm better at not shoving that on other people. And I think at that time when, you know, all of us were in our early 20s yeah. at most, yeah. you know, to sort of, it's one thing to have that in yourself and go, okay, I need to be somewhere. I think yeah. it's another thing where other people kind of read you know, we, we all wanted to achieve something, but I do remember. I think other people really enjoying the moment, and I think that's one of the regrets maybe. I, have. I think that I think that some comics, you know, part of you know whatever that manufacturing of of seemingly enjoying the moment was that, <laughs> like you're you're not unlike me in that, you, you know, we were very serious people, yes. and and it, you know we were not the 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 kind of people that you know if someone walked into a group. Uh, a room and it was full of people you or i would not be the ones they would go like that's a guy i want to hang out with yes there was there was not a, just a <laughs> that was general gregarious nature i think there was there was certainly a group of comics who and uh, by the way i think a large group very thoughtful very intelligent very yeah. dialed in. you had them, to yeah. be because sure. you're writing stuff that's sure. very in the moment but um and but it was just interesting because there were there was to be in that group again a lot of people the John Stewart's yeah. or the Adam Sandler's or the Chris Rock's or people that you look back on now, Ray Romano, people like that, where you go, wow, we were in the freaking clubs at, you know, two sure. o'clock in the morning, yeah. hanging out. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was grabbing for a brass ring. Right. And other people, you know, the Mike Sweeney's of the world who ended up becoming great show writers. writers, yeah. Writer, showrunner. He was a great comic. Great comic. Yeah. Really smart, but they're not the people that a lot of other people know, but they've changed, truly changed the course of entertainment. But not only that, is that what you don't know when you get in, and I think that you realized, you know, before I did, or, or I would never have realized it, because it was not, <laughs> it was not my, my trajectory, was that, you know, there were guys that realized, they, they got into comedy, and they saw what that life looked like, and what the odds were, yeah. and they said, uh, well, I've got this talent, but I ain't gonna do it here. Yeah. That, you know, like, I can write jokes, I have a sense of how this shit works, but that life, you know, to to, to roll the dice on being one of the, the 10 guys that makes a living, yeah. doing stand-up, yeah. is, is, it's a mature choice to say- well, 
it was it certainly I think anytime you make a a career altering life altering choice suddenly a little bit of maturity sleeps in it seeps in for me there got a, a there was a practical matter I did Letterman as you as you said and it, at that time he just moved to CBS that's yeah. how long ago this right. was and there was a sense of okay you know he's completely reinvigorated yeah. himself he's he's you know made CBS relevant yeah. in the late night space to if i do that show then i'm set and i'm made and i did the show <laughs> and the happened. next spot i had was at the improv on yeah. melrose at like 11:30 on a sunday which in la at 11:30 on a sunday is like 3:30 you know in the morning uh-huh. uh, in, in new york sure. and i was writing on the fresh prince of bel air at that time but but how did that happen so wait, wait let's go back so where did you where did you grow up I'm from a, a small town in Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee. Born in Milwaukee. Really? Yeah, real real small town. And how did um, your folks end up in Milwaukee or that? My 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 father was uh he was in the Air Force. He was a doctor in the he was was a doctor. He went into the Air Force when he came out. He was doing I guess his residency. Interesting. It's the same up, fucking story as me. Really? Yeah. Based on where where your parents and my, my my residency. dad ended up in Alaska. He was a doctor. <laughs> And they go into, they signed up yeah. because they could enter as officers. Yes. And, and, and. Yes, take, exactly. My dad, Vietnam era. Right. Was wise enough to know. Right. Did not want to be a ground troop and, and enlist in the Air Force as a doctor. Right. Captain. That's right. Yeah. And my dad was a major. Yeah. And we were stationed in Alaska for two years. Well, how old are you? I'm 50. So I'm 51. So yeah. it's same generation. That's yeah. right. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't interrupt your story. I'm just relating. No, so. That, that basically, that's how it what was. What kind of doctor? He was an ophthalmologist. So let's make the distinction. Optometrist is a skill. Ophthalmologist, medical practitioner, medical practitioner, <laughs> and it. surgeon. They can do surgery on the eyes. Yes. So he he ended up there. My older sister was born on a military base. I was born as a civilian. Where, where was he stationed? He was stationed in Michigan somewhere. So Milwaukee. So it's probably the same story. It's like it's a it's a the city. There, there's room for an ophthalmologist. Yeah. I know a guy there. Yeah, something like that. He's got to practice. Yeah, that kind of thing. It was. It was. Yes, he would. It, it was very interesting. My parents a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I asked them to do a family an oral history, and they did this oral history. And it's really. I encourage anybody to press your parents to sit down and actually talk through their lives, because mm-hmm. particularly my parents, the the now I'll use the word the shit that they did and the shit that they lived through, just by being regular people. Is phenomenal. Like I what? Mean, just you know, choices that they made in terms of going to the military and being a black officer in the military at that time frame when people thought that he could not do things, and the people who stood against him, and other white people who said, "You know what? Fuck that shit. You're, you're in the military. We're going to help you out." Yeah. Um, ending up as being a resident. You know, there, there was a time, honestly, in my dad's life where you talk about, you know, it was this or that, and he was like, well, I ended up being the first black person who did this and the first black person who did that. What? And he wasn't like aggrandizing, but little things, being on boards or being, you know, at a hospital. Right. And I, at some point, said, wow, that's really amazing that you right. did all this. And he said, it wasn't amazing when you were black back then. He did something. <laughs> you were the first. <laughs> But it was just interesting to hear my dad talking about making a choice like that, saying, I knew I was going to get drafted, and the smarter play was to enlist. And if I listed, I could go in the Air Force. If I went in the Air Force, I could go in as a as an officer. And you just kind of go, wow, that's people had to make those kinds of choices back in the day. Well, it's a, but there's a there's a, a confluence of choices in what you're talking about. That that you, I think that what people forget, and obviously, you know, I'm not saying everybody, yeah. is that 
the 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 racial issues that existed that we're fighting against are are, are current. Oh yeah. I, I mean, like you know, your father's lifetime for that. You know, it, that that it would be the first, and that's what in the mid '60s or the early '70s. It it the thing that is interesting to me is that there are many battles that we're still fighting, but they right. are different battles, right? And that there are things. The fact that we can talk about the fact that people can pour out in the streets and demonstrate, and it's still not easy or safe or things don't always people don't use their best nature when Mm -hmm. it comes to that yeah but it is very different than edmund pettus bridge Mm -hmm. now um the things you know i remember my dad talking about when he was uh going somewhere to look at housing and with my mom and you know he got surrounded by a gang of whites saying you're not going to move in here and this and that and it's still if you're a person of color you can't you know, there's unfortunately still some place where you can't just show up, but it, that, you know that's the exception now, and it's not the rule. So just in in listening to my dad's story, but even you know about Vietnam, and and obviously we're not beyond what people did at that time. Donald Trump is running, and people start asking him, you know, about his deferments and this and that. But the reality is, however he managed it, or other people managed it, whatever choices they made, there was a time when people had to make a choice and had to figure something out because you were going to serve or you were going to find service that was not directly related to going over there right. but but your life quite literally right and, and and after a certain point there were people that that did not believe in the cause so did not yeah. complete but but for people who whatever if you went to canada if right. you went and served if you went in it's better to find but, it, but oh. it impacted i'm saying it impacted yeah. people had to make a choice sure. at that point yeah whereas now you know my kids they want me to fill out their college application form. That's, you know what I mean? It's not, Dad, I need you to call so-and-so because I need to serve or serve somewhere right, or get out of the right. country. It's, Dad, what, how, do, how do I fill out an application? Could, I, and could what, you call the dean for me? Yeah. So what, what, but what else did you find out? Like, what, where did your grandparents, what was the, the history? What, the, when you say oral the history. Only, their oral history goes back to when they were, they met, they sat down together, which was also very nice to kind of get the, back and forth and I think my dad went off to service and my mom wrecked his car which uh-huh. was a trait that uh-huh. goes on to she wrecked my first car uh-huh. I, I love her dearly but uh-huh. that was sort of mom's what'd thing. she do my, my mother was and still is a teacher mm-hmm. and now she she for a long time was special ed now she teaches teachers how to teach so she retired about 20 years ago and through, through a retirement party but she hasn't stopped working so we're all yeah. sort of like I think we want our gifts back at this yeah. point but she loves what she does, and they're in great shape and great spirits, and I think it's because they remain active, so that's something else I learned. And you have siblings? Two sisters, older and a younger. Uh-huh. Older sister works in finance on the East Coast. My younger sister uh, works in is an executive at an insurance firm in Milwaukee, and she's uh, actually one of the few exec- female executives of color at the entire firm. It's a pretty big firm, and she's one of the few. So she, the, my sisters, they so remain driven. Well, it's not. I mean, look. The again, just even. I mean, look. You're 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 a woman. You know, the doors don't fly open. You're a woman of color. They 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 fly open mm-hmm. even less. But I give her credit in that. You know, my sisters never were not raised to care. So each of them has been um, very successful in their fields, and I don't mean just successful in like raking and dough, but not allowing whatever the the, the glass ceiling, um, whatever how however that glass is tinted. Yeah, yeah. They have not uh, allowed that to impede their uh, 
their career they, choices. They're all still in Wisconsin? My older sister is in New York, okay. and my younger sister is in but Wisconsin. Your folks? And my folks are still in Wisconsin. So you go to Wisconsin? We go to Wisconsin. We yeah. went there in uh, July. I took uh-huh. my son. We're going to go back the Packers season opener to see them get the uh, justice they deserve against Seattle in uh-huh. that abomination of a game. <laughs> so you, that, you I don't up, know why Goodell didn't investigate that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about it, but I like your passion. Oh my God. Did you you didn't see that, dude? I'm not a sports game? guy. I don't. It's not. I'm not connected. Well, even as someone who's not a sports guy, if you it's saw, fine. you right, called so it. And then I'm uninformed. Okay, it's a travesty. It was a travesty. Yes. And now you're you're going to go back and support your I, team. You, I mean, well, it's the greatest team in the history of organized sports. Okay, fine. So we, I, I, you know, you <laughs> can take that argument up with other people. <laughs> you're not going down that road with me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the I don't have the uh, the information, but uh, so. Growing up there, you know, what were your options? What were you like thinking about as a kid? You, you, because you're an Academy Award winning screenwriter, so yeah. yeah, I gotta carry that around. Um, it's, I mean, that listen, that is awesome, and I don't mean it in a hipster way. It is the kind of thing you dream about, but when you realize the people who've gotten the award, the people that you admire who have not. Yeah. Um, the people who may never have the opportunity, uh-huh. people who were pretty talented and may never get in the game. It's one of those things you just sort of- That's the nature of show business. It is. It is. And it's okay <laughs> to be outside of it. And you, yeah. know, you talked about when I was young and kind of railing and, yeah. and angry, and then suddenly it happens and you go, okay, what what the fuck? Yeah. You know, how uh-huh. did that work out? Right. So, um, but when I was, I, I always, I shouldn't say always, I, I at a very early age, I enjoyed film and the nature of storytelling. And when I was about, I guess I was probably in about seventh grade, seventh or eighth grade, I decided I want to be a stand-up comedian. Based for, on what? Based on where comedy was going. Um, Who you know, Richard like Pryor. Them? Yeah. Uh, I, I liked, here's the thing, I liked everybody. My dad used to take me, to, when comedians came through, different era, obviously, and no YouTube and right. very little cable access. It was access. a big deal. It was so, a big deal. So, he, you know, uh, Jerry Lewis would come through. Bob Hope would come through. Um, oh, yeah, and he would I go? Would, Oh, my dad would take me to see everybody. You know, I remember, unfortunately, now at the time, it was, you know, Bill Cosby coming through. The the concept of seeing Cosby come through and what he and he would sit in the chair. Yep. And I'm not even going to stay. I'm going to sit here in the chair and do my voice and make people. And I would sit there. I remember when, when Bob Hope came through and Bob Hope, you know, was corny, but it was still funny back then. He was a little darker than people give credit for. I mean, you know, he, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he was he, good. He was a good comedian. He was very good. And to be a kid in Milwaukee and have the Milwaukee arena filled up, you know, this is not Madison Square Garden. So to see Milwaukee arena filled up is a big effing deal. Yeah. And the whole, I mean, down to the, where the Bucks played and they put the seats right up to the stage and they'd have the opening acts and finally, and I, I didn't understand the concept of opening and all that at the time. So you're, as a kid, you're like, what? The, get get to Bob Hope. Get mm-hmm. to Bob Hope. Opening, opening, opening. Finally, Bob Hope comes out. And just, Funny thing is, we probably know some of those opening acts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get to a point, you realize, you know, I would have killed to be that opening act. Right. Um, so Bob Hope comes Bob out. Bob Hope comes out and just has the entire, you know, all of Milwaukee basically um, dancing on a wire with his jokes. And you look at that and go, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy. It's not a band. You know, he comes out and I think they had a, a band and a singer opening for him. Sure. This and that. And you realize it's not the band. It's not the singer. I remember Jerry Lewis had some dancers and stuff. It's one person, one dude on the stage and they're just saying stuff and people are doing, ah, And they got a point of view and they got a handle point on of things. View, uh, philosophy. Right. 
whatever it is, it's just they know how to ring it. And then, and, right. and, and then Steve Martin started coming along, and it I turned went to into that the, tour. Yeah, I didn't. I never saw him. I don't think I. I don't think I saw him. I would remember it, but you remember, you know, an album coming out sure. that you know was in those days. But of, you saw Cosby. I saw Cosby. Um, saw Jerry Lewis. I saw. Um, it was funny when Richard Pryor's album came out. My dad made me take it back to the store. Which one? Was that that nigger's crazy. Mm-hmm. And then when his concert tour started coming live on the Sunset Strip, he took our whole family to go. And I was like, well, so you now, saw Richard on that tour? We, well, we saw him. I saw the film, the concert film, but as a family. And I'm like, why is this now family viewing as a film? But I couldn't listen to it as a record. Um, which all, you know, is like anything else. When you ban it, it becomes that much more intriguing. Also, I guess because he thought that if we did it together, he could disarm it more efficiently. If you were sitting in your room alone, <laughs> learning how to talk like Richard Pryor, it was going to be a problem. Was, yeah, that was problematic. He's like very emphatic. <laughs> he listened at the door for a moment. He listened. He goes, well, that you got to take that back. And I was like, well, do you mean I can't listen to it You know, around the rest of the family? No, you got to take it back. He ended up taking it back. And it was really kind of furious. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And also, even then, you know, I just I sort of realized, I guess intuitively, that the comics hours oh, yeah. must have been really good. That I could not get up and put on a tie and right. work at a company. Sure. But I could, you know, figure out the jokes I wanted to tell. And you wanted and to express yourself. Out. Express myself and, and be the center of attention, but not in the dumbass way. But did you, like, but that's interesting because, y- y- you know, because I feel like we have something in common there that this was... The thing that appealed to me about comedy initially was like, I, it seems like you can pretty much say whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. And and the only context is it should, it should probably be funny as much as possible. Yes. So, so, <laughs> so like in my mind, it was like, I, I can just, you know, f- almost figure out who I am up there. That, you know, I can work this stuff through. That's my yeah. point of view. I, it's interesting. Well, I, you know, as someone who's, you've been around that your whole life been around comedians. Yeah. I, I look back on it. It is that sort of, I mean, if you're the one of the few black kids growing yeah. up in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And people actually, you know, Wisconsin was pretty cool, and I think largely because there were not a lot of black people. And you grow up- There's a lot very, of Lutherans, right? There's a lot, that Midwestern sort of like, oh, they Yeah, I grew up nice sort of people. Methodist and oh, Methodist, another thing yeah. where there were Lutherans. It was all that kind of like but no must, no fuss religion. Yeah, but there's no, no notoriously, you know, uh, tolerant and liberal-minded people in in, in They're in tolerant and liberal-minded because they don't have to- ever they're not challenged. Up, up against it right, right right and and that's all really really cool and it was yeah. good but there's certainly moments when i look back on my life where things like oh you know that mm, i wonder if that was what you know little things about like the part you didn't get in a play because uh-huh. you had to kiss a white girl and it was like oh uh-huh. you know and it was like well i know i'm really super effing talented yeah yeah i know i'm more talented than these folks yeah. why am i yeah. playing the orderly uh-huh. and not the lead role uh-huh so there are things like and, and it really does become a question. You can't uh-huh. say yes, you can't say no. Right. But I do think in that there was you are enough of an other in life where, yeah, you you gravitate towards let me figure out some of the stuff on stage. Yeah. And let me try to express myself. You did some on theater stage. Though. I did theater, yeah. You know, I mean there was all there was just the plan of me having significance through art. Yes. And so was it gonna be theater? No, I'm not really gonna be an actor. That doesn't quite work for me. And comedy, you're a little bit more in control of yeah, it yeah. and this and that. And so, then one day it became writing. It was no, I think writing but is But when what, did you start doing comedy? Uh, I went to New York in- After 80, college? You know, I was in, was in college, went to NYU, not not Tisch, which is- Just regular NYU, that English my major? Wikipedia. No, my, my major was East Asian languages and culture. What? Yes. My fallback was going <laughs> to go into- um, 
Foreign Service. And Japan was big at the time, and everybody, you know, you go through these phases. How's your Japanese now? Can you understand it? Skoshi. Oh, yeah. Really? So you were in. You were. I was in. I was going to move to Japan. I actually, I went to Japan for a while after school. But my, my, the, the idea was either going to go, was going to be a comedian or go into foreign service in Japan. And part of it was because Japan, everybody was so afraid that Japan was going to take over. And I was like, you know. Let Get me, on the winning team? Well, no, no actually it was, <laughs> let me actually learn something about this country. Because I have a feeling they're not going to take over. Here's the big, I think, the thing is about America uh-huh. is that we are, it's a very, obviously it's a very stable country. Yeah. And that stability over the long haul services us well. Right. In other countries, oh my God, the Arabs are going to take over. Arabs, right. they come to go. Yeah. China, you know, right now China, their market's tanking. It's just people park their money in America because it's stability. Yeah. And then everybody else goes to shit. And then, hey, look at America. We're just, we're right there still. Yeah. yeah. So whatever's next, Nigeria, India, they're going to park their money here. People are going to freak out. Oh my God, the Nigerians are going to take over. They got their oil money together. Yeah. They got all this and that. Nope. They're all going to, they fall off a cliff. Yeah. We're still here. Uh. So at the time, I it honestly wasn't, let me get on the winning team. It right. was, why is everyone so afraid of Japan? What is the, what is the truth about But was Japan? there some sort of fascination with Japanese culture? It is pretty interesting to me. I don't know anything about it, but it seems like Not, uh, it was it was what everybody nice was talking com- about, but nobody understood. Right. Okay. And I really felt like, um, for a lot of reasons, the the and coming to understand the culture, coming to understand. You know, this was a language a lot of people didn't speak. So if I learn this language, can I know more? Can I know more about the country? Uh-huh. Can I know you know more about uh, process and history and all of that? And so in the middle of that, and also I was really interested in Japanese cinema. Uh-huh. So at school, it was like I went to Gallatin and you could just, Gallatin at NYU is a, sort of a, a create a course of study. Uh-huh. So it was sort of taking a little bit of art history and a little bit of film and you a little did, bit you of You constructed language, your major. Constructed my major yeah. and thought about now that I know all this, you know, I could, I, I, it would be great to be an intermediary between the things that I I think that I've come to know about the country and the things that I you know, think I know as an American and really try to become, you know, go into service, ambassadorship. Not not that I would become an ambassador, but work with you know, right. an ambassador. Sure. Um, and then all of that didn't happen because comedy was- well, at some point you're like, this is a little easier. I'm just going to go up to the comic strip and- <laughs> Well, you know, you can't, you, you may begin to a fist fight in the morning, you know, at the comic strip, but you're not going to start a war. You know, yeah. you're not going to- say that casual phrase that you shouldn't have said or misinterpret a you know a, a right. missive between countries and yeah i don't think i had the capacity to actually work in in government service in any way shape or form yeah because it's a it's sort of selfless in a way it's you know you have to be on your game and you have to eventually some shit's going to happen you're gonna have to know how to write, say the right thing or fall on your sword or you know you just gotta be appropriate so you, in public. you really took it out that far this sort of like eventually i'm gonna be in the middle of an international event and i'm gonna fuck it up well i mean it, it you pick the tiniest country yeah the most you know docile nation at yeah. some point somebody gets really mad about right, some shit right. but it, i just like that you placed yourself in the middle of that and that was the deterrent to following through with that particular dream well isn't it there's it comes to that point where you know you get called to an office and say look you know they're it's the heads that got a roll. You know, we, we've written up this <laughs> statement. We'd be appreciative if you sign this. 
And you're like, what the fuck? I wasn't even... The-. Listen, it's just yeah. for the greater good, yeah, yeah. three years. You know, you watch Ten, Veep. Yeah, right. And Veep yeah. every week, the sure. same person's getting fired. And you yeah. go, that sounds it's, pretty much take like... Take the hit. In a couple of years, you come back. You get a nice job at this, you exactly. know. Exactly. We're going to... At some point, I'm going to be in the private, private sector. Private sector, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and we'll have you. Yeah. We'll have your back. Yeah. So I just... I, I felt like I didn't have the capacity. I mean, most yeah. of it is just at some point, you realize you don't really have the capacity to do that. Yeah, and you might not want to. And it, it's like, how you know, how does it, it encourage creativity necessarily, or how how do you really? Yeah, there, it was a it was a it was a box, and it would have been it's maybe a bureaucratic other, box, very much the bureaucratic yeah. box. Maybe I would have been decent at it, but right. I wasn't going to. Right, you know, I was I was going to rise to a certain mid level. Right, right. And, so when did you first do comedy? Man, I used to be able to remember the date. I guess it was probably about eighty. Right at the um, Comedy U Grand mm-hmm. when it was still on Grand Street was where I first did really comedy. Um, I don't remember yeah. that place. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Comedy U Grand was where um, a lot of us sort of very mid-level. You know, when you couldn't, you know, it was Catch a Rising Star was still around. Those were the big know, best place. of the best. Yeah. Comic strip. Yeah. You know, I never. What was the one? I never. I don't think I ever worked improv. Um, on 44th Street? Yeah, could never get in there. Never. Even when I was really... That, by that it. point, like, I got to New York in uh, 89, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I, I, so you started in college. You were in college. Yeah, I was still in college. Right, yeah. I started, like, I guess, uh, 87, 86, and I did a little in college, but, yeah, in 88, when I was in, when I got to, uh, 89, when I got to New York, Catch was still going, and the improv yeah. was dying. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty beat up, and the comic strip remains eternal yes somehow <laughs> i it, i haven't i haven't set foot in a comedy club in i don't know how many years i can't go into that space really more yeah so like comedy on grand you go you're a student you're freaking you're sweating you got your five i minutes. had five minutes yeah and you know honestly two two decent of the five yeah and uh they talked to me and they're like yeah you know you're pretty good work on this and that and you start yeah. coming in but you know the, all i could hear was you know you, you can come in you can start yeah, coming yeah, in yeah and you know i thought okay well I'll do this for a little bit then i'll get on carson and then you know maybe i'll have the sitcom maybe i'll just go ahead and do the concert film. you thought that oh i just i was so sure that yeah that my long-term destiny, thinking look at that i, I can't I, I never had that. but it wasn't it wasn't good because it was so assured and so arrogant and so you know what i mean i think the best thing in the world is that it didn't come easily because i had it i probably i, I couldn't I, I at 20 i was 85 i was 20 sitting yeah sitting 20 and uh you know i i i had things too planned yeah. for myself so i think it I don't think I certainly don't think based on my material it was going to happen right away. Things did start to happen, but there was a real you know, you get in there and you realize, oh, you actually, you know, 5 minutes is nothing. You need 10-15 minutes and you need a good 10-15 minutes. And these other guys and ladies, you know, they they've been doing it for a while and they got some good stuff. Some people doing it for a while and they hadn't broken and you're going to, you know, you better figure it out. But where would you get this thing where where you know, you you had to have this plan or that things had to happen that, you know, I mean, where, where'd you learn that? I don't know that it was learned in particular. I, I certainly, you know, my, my parents were very focused on, you know, nobody's going to give you anything. And it wasn't like they sat me down and wagged the finger. Yeah. But it was just, you know, again, you talk about that era and it was just, I think they realized that us living in the suburbs 
was not reflective of the black experience. Uh And you better be aware that you've been given advantages and you better take advantage of those advantages. Now, they, they never said to me, you need to be rich or famous or be a doctor or whatever, but that one day you're gonna end up in a space where we can't protect you or we can't take care of you. And that was the other thing about the, um, my parents doing an oral history, and there was a lot of cleanup that they ended up doing that you're not aware of. And I mean, when I say cleanup, I mean going back and checking people because there was the uh, lowered expectations for a lot of folks yeah. because they feel, well, you know, you're a black kid. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, in one incident with my sister where she was ended up being, uh, you know, she graduated with honors and she didn't, she didn't, you know, they, you give them one of those honor cords. Which yeah. I didn't get. Um, I didn't get, but I didn't earn it. And they didn't give her one at her graduation. My parents went and they were furious at the school and they said, you better look at her grades, you better look at the record. And they did and she had honors and they were really apologetic. And my mom was like, well, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to hold graduation again? Because you screwed it up. So there were, I think my parents were always very clear about making sure that we were aware uh, that if there were things that we wanted, we really had to go and fight for them. Right, that your experience growing up in the household that you you grew up in, that once you left that, that yeah, was gonna, and once you left be that real. state, right, that... Yeah you know, there was a, a reality awaiting you. Reality, and I think, you know, it was interesting because it was never, they never, they didn't raise us like, okay, you're you're black and the man is gonna be out right. to get you. Right, And you're black, so never trust white people. Right. Um, but it, I, maybe I interpreted or hyper-interpreted it is that you gotta, you gotta, whatever it is you wanna do, you gotta do. And it was interesting because I was really shitty at most things in life and really lazy. I mean, very genuinely lazy about most things uh-huh. until except for things that I wanted to do, and then I was hyper-focused on doing those things, and I think that's something I've carried. I'm not really good at, you know, if I had the, I had my son's uh, uh, treasure hunt yeah. today, it was his birthday, I was telling you about yeah. that, and it's a really haphazard, half-assed, you yeah, know, even yeah. if my wife were doing it, you know, the clues would be printed out on a nice piece of paper, and they'd all have right. be very lyrical and all this, and I, you know, sort of print out my computer and half-ass cut them out yeah. and, you know, kind of stick them Why was it there. your job this year? It's always, it's it's just something my son and I have developed right. and yeah. it's not that we're cutting my wife out, but it's just something we developed yeah. over the years. Um, I'm just saying when my wife does arts Anything. and crafts, right. yeah, 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 yeah. It's, you know, yeah. Right. it's something you could sell at a mall. Right. And when I do it, it's something that looks like you picked out of do a dumpster. You, do you think that had any, had the, uh, any effect on his decision today? <laughs> <laughs> which he told me he's, he's done with it he's he yeah he made the very mature decision he announced that you know he's like doing his kobe bryant retirement lap uh-huh. you know this is this is gonna be it <laughs> i just want everybody to know how much i love you and this one's for the fans <laughs> i think it's just he can read my my he's, he's old enough to read a dad's body language right. that you know it's like you got to go to bed at 10 o'clock because i'm not staying up all night to right you know, right to manage to, it to, to do all this yeah. stuff and he's like okay dad i know you're hard working and then you feel like extra crap because it's like you know, how you, old is he he's he turned 12. all right and so they're kind of reading and you you get that point where you you know the kids are reading yeah you know the reality in you, and you're like oh, yeah fuck, that's not what i want yeah you know, that's yeah. you know and then when he's doing it, it you know you, your heart is breaking because it's like you know you know don't don't reach that last one. Yeah. So I think yeah. we're gonna we're gonna reach some kind of a 
We're going to renegotiate oh, and good. see if we can get one more year yeah, out yeah. of it. Maybe, or, you maybe, uh, maybe change it up a little. Somewhere. Yeah, maybe you know, it'd be shorter. He won a lot of clues this year, and we may negotiate for you know half a season. Yeah, <laughs> have, like play half the season. On less the, clues, you know, bigger presents. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> he's also he's very sad because he's like you know, there's no gifts. To get. Everything's a gift card now. You know, yeah. everything is you know, yeah. iTunes card. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, something like that. So it, it the the pleasure is is gone for kids. It's just. You know, I I just want you to PayPal me some right. kind of <laughs> thing. But but your parents were preparing you in a way for something. They certainly prepared me in a way I think is harder now to prepare oh, kids. Uh, I guess what we're saying is though, like you you know you were lazy and you did not you know you weren't. Yeah, focused we were talking about that. Unless the you things were that obsessed. that I would obsess about, yeah. like my writing, right? Uh, like being involved in the stand shows up. or scripts stand up i kind of obsessed about i think there was the gap and i, I don't say the self-effacing but you know there's that gap between you can prepare and prepare and prepare and other people just have a point of view or perspective that there's a sharpness not that they don't also prepare a lot but they can take that joke or that line or, or whatever you were in it for a while i was in it for a while and like, I, what, I did well years, I, years? I did it from probably 80 five and i probably officially quit in probably about 90 three and then still did it a little bit and then i remember the last gig i did andy kindler um invited me to do a show i was still kind of around and andy was doing shows and he was like i don't want to do a show yeah out here it's funny because like both you like there's a uh, another black comic that i thought was brilliant and 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 thoughtful and and did uh, you know s- you know very sophisticated stuff, which wasn't easy in stand-up comedy clubs. And you yeah. were one. And Warren Hutcherson, Warren, who, yeah, who was, also went on to become a big writer. Yeah, and Warren, I actually Warren, I knew really well out here, and we'd actually written on a couple of things and a couple of projects. And it was interesting because Warren and I were very similar in a lot of ways uh-huh. in perspectives and I think temperament. And I think we both sort of saw that writing on 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 the wall, and and we had something else to turn to, but it was just yeah, there's not really that space for the quieter, right, black, right, guy, right. Who why the black that, olives in the can, right? <laughs> <laughs> Those sort of uh-huh. s- subtle jabs at, yeah, at, yeah. at race, yeah. And he certainly found, you know, space to explore those things. And I, I was fortunate, I think, particularly over the last couple of years, finding those spaces where I could explore race or class sure. or well, what, those so kinds of things. What happens, what was the day that you hit the wall? Was it after Letterman? Like, you, when did you move to L.A.? When, when, so I moved was... to L.A. in, in 90. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things, everybody was moving out here because they were getting holding deals. Holding right. deals was the big The phrase. development deal, yeah. The, the, yeah. the magic $200,000 deal. Yeah. And right. everybody was saying, John, you can come yeah. out here and get a holding deal, right. a development deal. And I was, and every, you know, people say it enough, you actually believe it. Yeah. So I came out here and couldn't get, couldn't get nothing. Yeah. And came, a manager brought me out here and it was one of those things. I mean, it was one of those. Which guy? Um, I almost, I know who it was and I, reg- I don't want to say it because okay. I just don't want to even give them any more credit than okay. they deserve. <laughs> but he had a, he had some black comics uh-huh. and he brought a, a few people out here and, um, moved out and he would stop answering my phone calls. Uh-huh. I mean, it wasn't even, he'd seen me on stage and decided to stop. Uh-huh. It was just, and it was one of those things where I was like, I just effed up. I just what made did the I biggest. Do? I'm in LA, got nothing. Biggest mistake of my entire Calling life. Calling your parents, I fucked it up. I couldn't even call them because no. I didn't want to, yeah. you know, the doctor and a teacher, hi, I'm in LA. And, and uh, got you know, nothing. Got nothing. Um, and I started writing. I mean, that's when I started 
I started, you know, doing clubs, but there's not as much money or it's not as accessible. Right. You know, in New and York. Then, and also when you come out here, you realize like, oh my God, some of my heroes are just doing these 1030 spots. Oh, and... I remember getting bumped for Leno yeah. once. Yeah. And you're just like, and then, you know, and, and, and Leno was really apologetic and he's working on material. Yeah. And, you know, couldn't be a nicer guy, but you still got to then follow Jay Leno and you just realize this is the life. These are the people who are now dropping in. Yeah. You know, it's not just the really good club comic who's really great in New Jersey. Right. It's... These guys, yeah. you know, the it, big shots. Oh, the biggest of the big. You know, yeah. Tim Allen is yeah. going to do a special, and he's working on a couple. And you're just like, oh, okay. And you're just sitting there. Yeah, waiting. you're just sitting there watching the audience just, you know, walk out after they're done. And you know, you can't. You know, you, you open with the hey, how about that guy? What's his name? Yeah. And you get the oh, hey, that's just really yeah, funny. Yeah. And then after that, yeah, it's the you know, yeah, starting from nothing, from beyond nothing. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, you know, they could, the guys who would bump you could not have been nicer, but it's that, Hey, well, sorry, kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the way it works. I gotta, I gotta, yeah. I'm doing uh, Caesars on uh, Friday. Yeah. I gotta work out this yeah. amazing 20 minutes. Yeah. So uh, there was not a lot of work. The, the work you could get was not a lot of money. There weren't, you know, in so you New never York, did the road really. I did. I did some of the road, but you know, in, in New York, you could supplement with sure. the stuff in Jersey, Jersey and, and all of that, and, yeah. and make you know pretty good bread. And yeah. you didn't, didn't have a car, didn't have car payments, didn't have insurance. Right. Uh, had a little teeny tiny place, and you could you know eat in New York for, right. for cheap. Right. You know, out here, nothing. No, you got to drive yeah. to McDonald's to get yeah. that deal. Yeah. That is not a you know. You could do Papaya King. Yeah, in New York. Yeah, yeah. go walk across town. Walk to Sixth Avenue. Oh my God, those were the best days. I, right? I forget how. Good, those just out in the were. city. It's all alive. Out in the city, um, dead broke. But you, you know, if you had, I don't even think the subway was a buck twenty-five yet. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. maybe a buck. You could get anywhere in the city. Papaya King, ninety-nine cent. Yeah, hot dog, uh, hot dog, and a drink. Yeah, um, I think you could get a drink for the night. Yeah, with the papaya at least the hot dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you could live. Yeah, but that's what life was. So you come out to L.A. You're getting bumped by guys like Leno. You get, you got other payments. Um, you know, your manager's not calling you. You're not getting this development deal that everybody else in the world could at least get. You know, maybe not the sitcom. They got the development deal. Yeah. I said, I got to, you know, what's the only other thing I can do? I can write. And how'd you I, get in? I wrote uh, a couple of spec scripts. And I did two things in very different directions. I uh -huh. wrote a couple of spec scripts and uh, for TV shows. And I had a friend who was an assistant at an agency who got me to an agent who got me, uh, I ended up getting a, a, a training program at Fox, mm -hmm. which saved my life, and it was paying 500 bucks, I think, a week. Um, but it was 500 bucks a week yeah. as, a, as, a, as a writer trainee. And the other thing I did, I wrote, and this is sort of weird, I loved, I loved uh, crime fiction, and I loved reading it, and I just said, I'm, I'm gonna write some crime fiction. And I wrote a little novella more than a novel it was a novella and it was called stray dogs and my agent got it to somebody a manuscript who got it to oliver stone who made it into this film called u-turn i love that movie with sean penn sean penn jennifer lopez i, mean, I remember when i saw you wrote that i'm like holy shit it was the weirdest you know going from studying japanese to wanting to be a comedian to kind of getting into tv to sort of your really big break is this weird, really weird, nihilistic novella that ends up in Oliver Stone's hands and was not even like a big movie, but was just right. like a cult movie. Yeah. And then people are like, hey, do you want to write movies? And I, I'd ended up then 
I'd, I'd end up moving over to Witt Thomas. Yeah. Which was uh, Paul Witt and Tony Thomas's company and did, you know, like Golden Girls and was actually doing the John Larroquette show with Mitch Hurwitz. Who and, did Arrested uh, Development. Did Arrested Development. But, you, so, but you said you worked on the Fresh Prince too? Worked on, I worked on Fresh Prince and I did half a season on Fresh Prince and then I went over to Larroquette and U-Turn was, I think, either just coming out or just come out. Were and, you in the rooms? I was you in the rooms. I was yeah. in the writer's rooms. Okay. I was doing all the so fun staff stuff. Guy. Yeah. Again, like a, a time in my life I underappreciated at that time. But you're sitting around with some of the funniest people. Is it Larroquette, Mitch Hurwitz, Pam Brady, uh, Will Gluck, uh, Jonathan Schmack, who uh, Jim Vallely. Yeah, uh, the funny boys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. really, really funny people. And so Paul Witt was walking down the hallway. We're at Sunset Gower. Yeah, and I think. Uh, U-turn was coming out or just came out, and he was walking, and he's like, "You know, if you, we, we're in the film business too, if you ever got a film idea," and I, I was like, "Yeah, I got a script I want to show you," and I didn't have a script. Yeah, <laughs> and I went away. I went, I literally, I went away for a week, and I wrote this script that ended up. It changed, but it ended up being the film that was Three Kings masterpiece. Uh, I was involved. There were there were many changes, but there there were. Uh, um, um, it was one of those things. This is where, going back to where I said to you, there are a lot of things I was really lazy about. And then there were things where I was like, I, Paul Witt, walking down the hallway saying, do you have a script? And I said, yeah, I got a script. And I didn't have a script. And, I, and like I said, I went and I said, I'm, I'm writing a script because if this guy who, he and his partner, uh, legends, not only legends in show business, but at that time before, you know, the FinCEN rules changed and, you know, you had these big independent producers, you know, they're huge in television. I was like, okay, uh, this is a rare opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to get a script to this, this gentleman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was very fortunate and, you know, there was, you know, making movies ended up being, you know, it took a long time, but that was one of those things that really changed. What was your relationship with David O. Russell? At the time, my relationship with David, David, you know, goes off, he does his thing and- Takes your script. Takes the script, rewrites it, which to me also I will say was just an early education because being a comedian, you know, you write your stuff yeah. and it's your stuff. Yeah. Being on a TV show, it's certainly very collaborative, but yeah. as a writer, you're very involved. My first film was from a novel that I adapted. Your so novel. all my novel. Yeah. So everything is yours, 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 and that was the first time with David where you 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 learned that it there's a there's a whole other different process, and it was not good or comfortable or pleasant. But I will say, which was also very very nice at this year, this past year, uh, at the Oscars, you know, he was one of my biggest supporters, and was very vocal in the support of me and the script that I wrote. So it was nice. It was very cyclical. W was there was there issues early on? It was just not comfortable being rewritten. I don't think it was comfortable for him having somebody, again, a, a young black guy who was yeah. raised to not just go along to get along, go yeah. that, well, you know. Right. I, so you fought it. I, I don't, we never personally right. fought, right. but it was never comfortable right. as two very strong-willed people. And how much of the, your stuff do you see in that film? I would say the story, the setup, the circumstances, yeah. everything else, the direction, the dialogue, the sort of off kilterness, that's all, you know, David and what he is a writer uh -huh. and as writer director brought to it. Uh -huh. You know, and now you know, I'm very you know, at the time it's very uncomfortable people would say about Three Kings, you know, like, you know, you don't know your part in it. You know, certainly, you know, sixteen years later. And I think both of us, are, you know, we're doing okay. Yeah, you can. I think I can objectively look at it and go, "This guy made an, not only an amazing film, but being part of that helped make a career for me." 
Yeah, and yeah. but you you still did during this time. I I guess in the end, you still did television. Still did television. I mean, I loved to write, so I was still doing television. I was working on. I, I segued in from half hours into drama. But you did the show though. With was that Sam Cedar? I did the show with Sam Cedar. Yeah, that's where I met Sam. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, I, I racked up a lot of TV. Yeah. So I did the show. Yeah. I did Larroquette. Yeah. I did Martin. You did Martin? I did the Martin show. I, do, I did Martin, then Fresh Prince, then- But this was just as a staff writer. Yeah, I was still a staff writer. Right. I think as the, by Martin, I think I was story editor. Uh-huh. Uh, Larroquette, I may have been like executive story mm-hmm. editor- you know, every year you get a little extra something tossed in your title. Yeah. Um, by the time I got on to uh, the show, I don't know, maybe executive story editor, maybe, I don't know that I was a producer on any of those. Right. By the time I got into, I did a show called Trinity with John Wells, very short-lived. I think I was a producer, a consulting uh-huh. producer, third watch a producer. Then I went and did a show with the Coppolas. I'd worked with the Coppolas previously. And I did on a show what? on- Two things. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was going to do a version of Pinocchio that never got made, and I worked with him on that. How was that working with him? Unbelievably great. Just phenomenal individual. What'd you learn? Everything. Um, Everything's a hyperbole. I learned this, is that you can talk about success and failure in the same breath and not either be you should not be ashamed of one or other, ashamed of one or overly aggrandizing of the other and francis is the kind of guy he would talk about his you know he talked about um he he thought uh one from the heart was going to be sure. one of the greatest films ever and it didn't turn out to be he thought dracula he didn't feel like that was ever going to be his best work and it turned out to be one of his biggest hits um you know he just talked about he talked about in Patton where, you know, now we look at that scene with George C. Scott in front of the flag as one of the great iconic scenes. And he talked about he had to fight for it and fight for it and the studio didn't get it. It's like, well, where's the audience? And is this before? Is it a flashback? Is it whatever? And he yeah. said to me, you know, the things, and it is a fundamental statement, but hearing it from Francis Ford Coppola makes it, you know, one of the life-altering And And comments. also, like, he did a lot of movies that, that, that sort of fall through the cracks. Like, that, what was that one, The Gardens of Stone? Gardens James of Stone. Conn. But also, one of the films that he did that to this day, in terms of what informs me and the language of cinema that I try to use um, when I've directed things like All Is By My Side or American Crime, yeah. uh, there's a little film that he did that George Lucas was a producer on called Rain People. And uh, Duvall was in it, Jimmy Kahn was in it, James Kahn, Mr. Uh-huh. Kahn, I should yeah. say. Um, what he does, and it's actually about a, a woman who is on an exploration of self, very existential film, and very feminist film. How old? 70, maybe 70, maybe So it's like one of his first So movies. before Conversation, yeah. uh, before The Godfathers, uh, all of that, and how he approached editing or how he leading a team of individuals approach editing sound language of cinema mm-hmm. space mm-hmm. i mean honest to god if you watch that film you will see you will, you get teed up for this is going to be one of the great directors of all times and mr coppola i i'd worked on red tails with which george lucas produced and my kids were, we went to the premiere my kids were there my parents were there it was honestly probably the greatest moment of my life. 
It's all right. So anyway, Mr. Copel is there. Yeah. And just the nicest guy. Oh, John, haven't seen you in years. How are you? Oh, your wife, she's so lovely. And I look at my kids. I go, I'm sorry. It's okay. I said, you, know, you don't know. The, I'm sorry. It's okay. So I said, you don't know who this guy is. Yeah. But you've got to remember this moment because one day you're going to start seeing films and what this guy has done and how he's informed the language of cinema, uh-huh. how he's informed the language of cinema is just amazing. Yeah. And so I even now I still say to my kids, I say, do you remember that day? And they're like, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, to be there, you know, Spike Lee, who's right. been a big champion of mine in my career, he was at the premiere, George Lucas was there, um, Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. um, my parents, my kids. Yeah. You know, my um, uncle was a Tuskegee Airman. So that moment... You know, you think that um, career-wise, yeah. it's not going to get any better, right? And then over the last couple of years, that it has gotten even better, and right? Still more rewards, right? It's just been, you know, it's been life-altering. So I get a little emotional. Like it sounds to me that because of the intensity of that moment, that this is, you know, you really put your heart into it, and there was a lot in the balance of of how that was characterized, both for you personally and and to honor the the legacy of those guys. It was all in in all it was a transitional moment in my career mm-hmm. because there had been I had a really nice before. You know, you mentioned a lot of the TV shows I'd worked on or things that I'd done or you know, being able to work around mm-hmm. um, other individuals like David or Russell very creative, but at a little bit of a distance. And yeah. in that time and space, you know, I was obviously getting older, my you know, I had a family uh, it was around, you know, 2000. That came out actually in 2012. So we as a people, you know, the economy had gone through crap. The entertainment industry had changed. You know, it was harder to make, it was hard, it's hard to make films at all. Yeah. It was harder to make any film. And I really felt like this may be um, a singular opportunity. Right. And, you know, obviously working with somebody like George Lucas right. was a big deal. Yeah. Um, telling a story that's about, us, all of us, yeah. but also very specifically about black American history and trying to prove to people that it's American history. It's not just black American history. And then you sort of feel like, well, maybe this maybe, maybe this is it. Because I actually didn't have a lot on the horizon at that point because um, I was very dissatisfied with a lot of the few opportunities that were out there. Um, the business was constricting. And I felt like, you know, you, the things that you could chase that were becoming, you know, the Marvel type stories or DC, you know, the best of the best are are being offered that, and I was not in that category. But but but, it, but what category were you in? I was in the guy who made some interesting films that people but, didn't really see. You know, but, but, Undercover Brother or U-Turn or Three Kings, which is not, you know, those are all sort of cult films. But but also like in television, it seemed that like over time, you know, you were involved with Wanda and, you, and yeah, I was doing Wanda. So Wanda, uh, who I didn't know, I got introduced to and became a really really good friend. Has a very particular point of view, and we were doing a very particular show. So there were people watching and loved it and other people were baffled but by did it. you feel that you were were in black entertainment no it wasn't even that because yeah. i to me what i part of my life's work and i don't want to overstate that like yeah you know, right. I'm sure sure trying to win a nobel prize but is to show people black entertainment it's, it's our entertainment right and the best inter- one of the things that always breaks my heart is you know uh, richard Pryor becomes mainstream well he's not really black anymore eddie's not really black you know will smith's not really black anymore and it's like well what the fuck you know it's like you, once you succeed it's like well now you're an outlier 
Uh, and which you, is crazy. Where which is crazy be. because it's like, well, we can't do this movie over here because it's not Will Smith, so it's a black movie. And it's like, but that's the whole point. He became mainstream because everybody loves him and his work. So why isn't that all mainstream? So I never felt like there's a problem with doing stuff that was quote unquote black. The problem was other people weren't looking at it and saying this is mainstream entertainment. And, right. I, and, and again, as an aside, over the last couple of years, even now when like Kevin Hart would have a film that opened really big yeah. or when Best Man Holiday opened big and yeah. the language was, well, you know, those films overperformed. You know, that's what you would read in the trades. They over and it's like, no, they didn't fucking overperform. You didn't read the appetite for all audiences to go see those films. So I I've always felt like there's that battle between that sense of you're just doing genre entertainment versus no it's actually entertainment for everybody don't right. consider it right, genre right, entertainment right. so i never had a problem you know wanda was she was you know really at the height of her game and there was something she wanted to do and i think the folks that we were working with had no concept of how best to work with her so i ended up working with a lot of really interesting people who us we were not mainstream Keith. talent yeah, Keith Robinson. Keith Robinson is not mainstream talent. He's funny as shit, but you, yeah. I don't think the people who were, you know, wanted Wanda and Keith were like, okay, you understand that what you're getting is, <laughs> you know, it's better served on HBO. It's like, no, 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 we're going to put this on broadcast. Yeah. And Wanda comes in saying, you know, I'm just doing my thing. And they're like, yeah, 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 but we're going to end you up, you know, we're going to put you at a desk and we're going to, you know, have you, you know, talking to, you know, yeah. whoever's selling a show this week. That and, didn't what, work out. and what happened with Barbershop? Barbershop was another thing where it was... But you created that. I didn't create... You know, we, we they were doing it as a series. Yeah. And they said to me, you can... And I said, you know, Barbershop, it's a very particular brand. They go, no, 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 you can do whatever you want. You yeah. can do whatever you want. I said, okay, I'm going to do whatever I want. And, you know, especially having worked with Mitch, you know, kind of doing this sort of... Mitch Hurwitz yeah. doing this sort of odd stream of consciousness comedy. Yeah. You know, that with Barbershop, with the people... Mm-hmm. that we we're doing with those three things did not align at right. all <laughs> yeah. so i really enjoyed it had a great cast great group of writers um i think warren was on that as uh-huh. well warren was writing on that and we were doing this really stream of consciousness very subtle i mean it ended up being that subtle jabs at race and i think warren actually no you know it was it was um lance crowther yeah, yeah lance, lance was yeah. on the show and lance wrote in and among great jokes but he were talking about one thing in particular is going, look, the whole, there's a black guy saying this, like the whole point of desegregation was so that we could go off and live by ourselves. And so, you know, it, you know those kind of, you know, it was that kind of subtle humor. And, and yeah. so you do a, a 30 minutes of that and people are just like, you know, your, your corporate masters are like, what, what's happening? What the fuck is this? <laughs> so that was a great experience. But, you know, and, again, and, it was niche. And you're writing books all along the way. Writing books all along the way, and which is also procedural. very procedural. I did a show that was a procedural show. Um, well, I did crime novels yeah, every right. step of the way, and then did a show called Third Watch. Yeah, that was probably the the biggest hit that I'd ever been anywhere yeah. around, uh-huh. and probably is what saved my what little bit of a career that I had. Yeah, was you know there was a little bit of respectability on my on sure. my resume. And, and but point. I'm I'm just I'm retrofitting this because this is all leading up to Red Tails. And, yes, and 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 you know that that cathartic moment you felt. At the peak and 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 the emotional resonance, it also came with this with this idea of everything changing and you yeah. not really being sure where to go from here. Yes, yeah, so there comes a moment where um, I absolutely felt like I've gotten nowhere 
I don't know where I'm going to go. I can't right. keep doing niche stuff. You know, right. you can. Right. But, you know, at some point people are going to go, well, why are we giving this guy a check? Yeah. And, you know, you can, <laughs> you, you can go find a, a nice little alternative space to work in. And that's great. But I, I didn't, you know, I got a wife and a couple of kids yeah. and yeah. mortgage, you know, that that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I, I did not fit in though with any bigger thing. I, I don't think I had the wherewithal to just do something small and, and, and curate that. I didn't have roll the, the dice. Well, not even so much roll the dice, but really curate it in a way that um, people take that and they go, oh, that is such a really interesting thing and your voice is so unique. Now we understand why we're going to subsidize that Yeah, because we get it. You, we're seeing you in all of that. I don't think I'd done anything right. that, you know, I, I kept, here was the problem is I would take something like Undercover Brother or, or what became Three Kings or even U-Turn and I was passing it off to other people who were very, very talented. But whatever it was maybe I was trying to say in that was then being dissipated in other people's vision. And mm -hmm. certainly Oliver Stone and uh, David o. Russell had a vision and were being lauded for their vision as they should. But whatever I was bringing to it or even not bringing to it was then being obfuscated in what other sure, folks were sure, doing. Sure. So at some point, I never really... That Sometimes that's a writer's dilemma. It is the writer's dilemma, that you're creating something and you do it well enough to get it off the ground, but people lose that. Mm -hmm. People lose you in that. Yeah. And so I had not done that thing where, even through Red Tails, which emotionally was phenomenal, I still looked at it and go, okay, but that, for right or wrong, that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I said, I got to start really... You said it, you know, I, I really need to roll the dice on me and it's either going to come up a winner or it's going to come up craps and if it comes up craps. I know I need to maybe go back into foreign service yeah. or go into Brush foreign up on service, that Japanese. Japanese, see if I can work that out yeah. or I'm going to show people this is what I'm all about and maybe they will, maybe that is strong enough to carry me through the, my waning years. So uh -huh. a couple of things happened and one of them was, um, beginning the work on what was going to end up being 12 Years a Slave. And the other thing was beginning work on what was going to be this film, All This By My Side, that was about the year Jimi Hendrix spent in London. Um, that was a real crapshoot because we didn't have rights to certain music and this and that. And I was like, I don't care. It's not about the music, which may be heretical to say about Jimi Hendrix's life, but I said, I want, I want, to, I want to talk about this person. And What was that? Why, 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 why Jimi? Because when I was a kid in Wisconsin and everybody was listening to rock music, I was like, okay, I want to fit in and, you know, rock music and rock's good. I liked it. I grew up on it. But, you know, I didn't want, you know, the Stones or those guys. Peter yeah. Frampton is those guys. I yeah. need I need somebody who looks like me. Yeah. And Jimmy looked like me and rocked like them. Yeah. But was cooler than everybody. Yeah. And I was always fascinated by this guy. And I ended up being more fascinated by his story than... His music, I think over time, I mean, his music is amazingly mature. You can certainly, you know, whip oh, your dude, head to timeless, it. Timeless, yeah. But at some point when you really get into the deepness of it, um, Bold as Love and Little Wing and the yeah. things beyond, you know, Watchtower, Hey yeah. Joe, you know, there's a whole other thing that's going on there. 
Um, and also him, you know, his ethnocentric nature that most people don't acknowledge and are not aware of, which is great, but to a degree, he transcended race. But as a person of color, you still have to deal with that. Yeah. And in some ways, differently than people would think, you know, the Black Panthers early on were kind of pissed because he wasn't doing enough, quote unquote, black stuff. Yeah. And his whole thing was, man, I'm for the people. You yeah. know, I'm not. <laughs> right. Don't look at me one way. So there were elements of his story that were really fascinating. But both of those gigs there was no money involved up front. You know, with was, either 12 Years a Slave or the Jimmy No, thing. and it was very liberating in the sense that now I've got to make it work or it doesn't work What happened work to that all. movie? All is by my side. Andre Benjamin played Jimmy. Uh, we, played at Tor- we played at Toronto. All is by my side and um, 12 Years both open at Toronto. This was a passion project for you that, you, that came out. You, you I wrote it, it and I wanted to write it, it and direct sky. it. I'd, right. I'd been pitching it around at some studios and everybody was like, they didn't quite get it because it was like, it was just a year in his life. It's not- It was when he went big, to London. It's when he went to London. He went to London under the name Jimmy James, working, doing Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, came back Jimi Hendrix, but also came back with the style, with the look, with obviously- oh, no so that was, his, that was his cathartic moment. That was it his was transformation. It was his origin, his transformation. Right. Okay. But at 20, 23 years old, was actually kind of washed up it played with um, I can, Isley Brothers, yeah. I Can Tina Turner, Little yeah. Richard. Didn't fit in. Goes to London. Comes back to Jimi Hendrix. We know. I wanted to tell that story. And then he goes back to London and blows everything out of the water. Well, he blew everything. He played at the Savile Theater. Well, he went back to London. Unfortunately, when he really went back, he died. He yeah. was basically three more years. But he played at the Savile Theater. And I'll, I'll make it as, as concise as possible. He had, you know, he clapped in and seen him. Loved them. Beck, Townsend, everybody. And Paul McCartney. That had, was the time. When he that did was the that time. The on first Sunday. Time. Yes, at the Savile Theater, yeah. which is in our our show. We actually got the Beatles and their estates to allow us to use Sgt. Pepper in the film. And Andre Benjamin does that performance. And just, I will use, I think, fucking only the third time, Andre destroyed. And, and the film did not get a wide release. But the reason I talk about that film is that the way that I, I pitched it around to studios, everybody's like, we don't get it. We don't get it. You don't have the music. Why is it just that year in London? It's about him and his yeah. relationship with Linda Keith, who's one of the amazing unsung heroes yeah. of rock and roll. And I said, because this is, this is about this guy's life. This is about him. It is not meant to be just about the music. We're, and we can, there are other songs that we can get. And we're also not chasing these performances that you cannot, um, we, I don't want to lip sync them. I want to take performances that no one has ever seen and create them when he played at the uh, Polytechnic and Clapton saw him and all this and that. So anyway, um, people wouldn't bite on the film and I said, fuck it, I'm making this film. I'm tired of people telling me no. Yeah. So I was going to do that as a writer-director. I was going to write 12 Years a Slave. There was no money involved. How'd you get that gig? Was that your choice to write 12 Years a Slave or was it? That was uh, Brad Pitt's company and there's a gentleman over at Brad's Pitt company who sat myself and the director down. We were both very, very, very unknown and you said, whatever you guys come up with, there's a guy, Jeremy Kleiner at Brad Pitt's company who just, I'd written a movie about the LA riots that has not yet been made, but he thought that the script was just phenomenal and spoke to perspectives and spoke to issues and spoke to things that have not, even come close to going away in the 20 plus years. Um, so he sat us down. He said, whatever you guys come up with, we want to make this movie. So we sat down and we ended up coming up with, well, we, we found this memoir. You and Steve McQueen. Yeah, uh, of Solomon's, which basically is, you know, one of the most powerful documents I've ever read. Um, so at literally at the same time, and I mean literally, not 
a lot of people use that incorrectly. But 12 Years a Slave and Always By My Side were shooting at the same time. So 12 Years was shooting Louisiana, Always By My shot, Side. We shot it in Dublin. And you're directing. Post in London. It was directing. So it was, in time difference, I was prepping one film during the day and writing, you know, doing rewrites on the other one at night. Mm-hmm. Um, then, even more ironically, both of them opened at Toronto Film Festival in 2013. And then out of the festival... <laughs> And this I have, you know, sent it to my mom. So Entertainment Weekly picks four films that they loved out of the festival and puts little pictures. Two of them, two of them were, one was 12 Years a Slave, one was Always By My Side. So, you know, you go from nothing to, you know, finally, you know, honestly, in a good way, the, the arbiter of pop entertainment of, of crossing over, saying two of the films that you were involved in. And the third one was Gravity, and I don't remember what the other one was. Mm. I think it might have been Rush. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of a sudden, you're in and among that. And then from there, the time that it opened in Toronto, 12 years, um, through obviously the Academy Awards the following year, and then All Is By My Side did not get a wide release. You know, Andre did end up getting nominated for an Independent Spirit Award, which he deserved. Um, I can't be objective, but I can just say. And then, but ABC ended up seeing the film, the executives at ABC, and they saw that and they loved it. And they said, you know, you're, you're writing this thing, American Crime. Do you want to direct it? And I said, yeah, I'd love to direct it. And that, you know, had ended up making, you know, this next phase of my career, you know, American Crime and you know, getting the Emmy nominations. It's just been an amazing Last as a director. couple of years, as as a director, actually, didn't, I ended up not getting an Emmy nomination as a director, but as a writer, uh, the show got nominated. Tim Hutton, Felicity Huffman, Richard Cabral, Regina and that's King, something, and that's a, your creation. America. But that the uh, writer, creator, executive producer, and we're in what that. season now? We're in s- season two. We're 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 shooting season two. We start shooting that in a, about a month. Um, so it's. Are you appreciating this now? Now I appreciate it. Having gotten to a point where emotionally I was steady, you know, I didn't have a big flame out with booze or drugs or, or things like that. But a moment where you go, okay, I think this may be it for me. You know, this may be the end for me. If I can't make this work and I'm going to roll the dice, as you say, on two films where I'm not getting paid, there's no big fee. Um, they were both independent films and they're both these oddities on paper. You're trying to make a film about Jimi Hendrix that's, you know, independent and it's not sanctioned and you don't have these music rights, but you want to tell a story that hopefully has an emotional velocity and emotional honesty. And you're writing another movie about slavery that is not, you know, the let's run out and see that film this weekend, the subject matter. (laughs) You know, oh, it's Friday. That slave movie is open and let's get the kids. But both of them worked in their space. Both of them did what they needed to do in terms of um, representing the subject matter as well as representing, finally, I think, what I was trying to say, Mm -hmm. whatever point of view, and not even just a political point of view, but in terms of uh, a stylistic point of view, Uh Um, being very observant, being very fundamental, Uh being very sparse, um, and letting the moments drive themselves rather than trying to create some kind of artifice yeah. necessarily around or, or bombast what around do you, do you find matter. that like obviously with the jimmy movie you, you know you were your relationship with the director was very close uh, <laughs> probably that- <laughs> too close i probably the thing that i learned is you're better off having a little distanceation between well, yourself what, what and- was your relationship with mcqueen 
It was, I, I said it one time, and I meant this, it was out of all the people that I'd work with, he was the most fun. It was really a fun time, because I think we were both so... It's interesting that you say that about that movie. Great time. We well, didn't... I think when you're dealing with that kind of stuff, you, you have to enjoy the process, because when you get to the work, it's, you know, people were really, it was really, really emotional. Now, I was not around for the shooting. I went down there for a little bit, but because I was shooting this other film yeah. at the same time, I was in Dublin. But for the moment, you know, I was down there, I think, in the, in the, the scene where Chuatel wakes up in the slave pen and is beaten. And you're there for a, a couple of days. And you go, okay, these, these folks have been with this 35 days. The subject matter was with it for 12 years. Yeah. Um, a, our history as America was with it, that peculiar institution, for 150 years. And you wonder why we still deal with it. Because, because it is mass psychosis. That's the only way it works. So that was an education, you know? Um, but yes, from the time that we sat down to the time the movie gets made, yeah. it was just interesting because you're also around someone who has a very interesting viewpoint and it's uh -huh. just very interesting to me. He makes me laugh. He's yeah. a, you guys are all right? Yeah, you know, as much as I am with anybody. I don't, I don't get out much and socialize. It's not my thing. You're awfully hard on yourself, buddy. I'm, I think I'm, I've, as I've gotten older, I think I've, I try to be more honest with myself to save other people the, the hassle of having to be honest with me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but, but I, are you sure you have the, the, the proper perception? No, I don't <laughs> think any of us do, but I think that I, I, I've, I'm, I'm cognizant, I'm more cognizant of that guy that you probably remember 20 some years ago. Right. Who was just furious about getting to the next point and yeah. saying, I've been fortunate enough to have another point and it's been probably in, in terms of the creative space and the recognition of not only what I'm doing, but the people that I work with, you know, now you get to work with people, you know, like there are people like Hank Corwin that most people don't know. Mm -hmm. Who's one of the great editors yeah. in history of cinema and you get to work with somebody like that and it's like, well, we're just gonna enjoy this. And yeah. when we did all this by my side, we were just like, we're gonna enjoy this and people are gonna be baffled by it. But now we have the opportunity to take that that befuddlement and really drive it forward. Um, and that's worked. So I, I think that I'm more, um, I'm, I'm more aware of a level of presentation, but I'm also more aware of 90% of the time I shouldn't be presenting myself to anybody. Yeah, but, uh, but so I sit at home and, you know. Uh, well, that's, well you, you know, we you, you, you choose what you can handle and you know, yes. sometimes other people are, you know, you can't handle it. What are you going to do? Well, I think that that is the big thing and I think that that is, I, I, I think I've always been good about not, and again, going back to my parents instilling me, but I'm not worried about, you know, how, how other people think and I think that a, a big chunks of my life People have been like, oh my God, why would you say that in public? Or why would you do that? And go, because why, why, would I, why would I care? I'm not here to win a popularity contest. I don't willfully want to hurt people's feelings. Yeah. And I do, like the majority of the time, I just sit in my house and, and just sit in a room and, and try to work on the things that I do. But in those moments where I know that I'm going to go out and be around peers or present things, you go, okay, if you're going to engage, you know, engage in the sense that you love what you do. Be pleasant. And pleasant and pleasant <laughs> in the sense that I'm not I'm not here to actually cause strife. You know, somebody said, you know, treat your enemies like your friends because then if a conflict comes, you know that you've done everything that you've done you could to avoid conflict, but you can adjudicate that conflict without guilt. Yeah. So there's that sense of, yeah, I'm out here to really you know, to to love 
the creative process and love people who create, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that I'm going to abdicate my own points of view or right. my opinion. But, but it sounds to me like, you know, and for, for, for my experience with you now is that, you, you know, you have achieved a, a type of success that, that you, you can own proudly and, yes. and, and you, you enjoy it. I enjoy it more than I ever could have thought. I, I enjoy what it has afforded me. What I really enjoy about the the whole Oscar thing was being welcomed in the Academy as a member. Mm. And that sense of fellowship, that object itself, is it's, it's not anywhere where I can readily see it. Mm. And it's not around, and, nor are any of the other objects, and not because I'm not proud of them, but because it's sort of like... Um, there is, if you're, I think if you're all human, there's that little bit of, you know, 99% of you is so sure of everything. And there's that 1% that is louder than any part where you go, yeah, I don't know if this should be in my house or if it should have gone to yeah, yeah, these uh, yeah. guys or those but, guys but is or it, this but, lady is a writer. It, but like, I, you know, I don't know, uh, like in talking about your parents and this sort of like you know, this, these historic things, yeah. how many how many black people have won Oscars for writing screenplays? There was one, one other. One other guy. Yeah, wrote uh, Precious. So it is one of those things where, you know, I'm not the first. I'm not breaking ground, but you go, you know, if we threw a party, you know, <laughs> we could do it and, you know. Well, and, you know what, man, yeah, I, I, this is great talking to you. And, you. and and you know what I love? You started a fucking comic. You were a fucking comic. <laughs> I did, and there's maybe one day, you know, just you go back and, I don't know, one, I, sometimes you, I think know, you don't have to go back, and I think it's interesting that you can't even go, like, you're not, you can't, can't even go, go to club. I was talking to, literally talking to some comedians yesterday, and we're talking about clubs, and I said, I can't go in, and not because it's a bad traumatic space, but it's just one of those things where it's like, it's not, I don't, I, I feel weird in here. It is, but Should it, I enjoy it? it? Should it, I? But it is a traumatic space, because, like, you know, it, it probably triggers, like, there's that sweat, man. When you're in it for, you were in it for six, seven years. Yeah. You, waiting to get up there and, you know, I can't imagine. It's, it's a weird feeling. But you did all right, buddy. You know, and I'm proud of you. Uh, thank you. I Good to talk to you. appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very much and thank you for having me. It was great to see John. I, I enjoyed that conversation. And I like him. It was touching. Go to WTFPod.com for all you WTF pod needs. Get a poster. All the artist names are there. All the art is there. Check the calendar. I'll be in Ireland and England and Australia coming up. And uh, get some justcoffee.coop if you want. Do whatever you got to do. Get on the mailing list. Um, yeah. And look out for Howl. H-O-W-L dot F-M. That's where it's all going to be happening for WTF and the archive. Mm. <laughs> Yeah.